This is the Best Song Podcast, an oral history of the first 90 years of the Academy Award for Best Original Song. The Best Song Podcast was made possible by the generous support of the following. Paulus Edukas, Terry Freerks, Tina Fry, Jeff Glazer, Mark Hollingsworth, Douglas Meacham, Mark Smith, The Sokolov Family, Colin Stokes, Adrian Quinn Washington, and Ben Watson. Let's settle in now for another year in movie music with host Jeff Cummings. I'm so excited that we've reached 1974 on the Best Song Podcast. That's the year I was born, so the songs nominated this year, as well as many of the films that were made, have a lot of significance for me. It's also the year that the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences beefed up its rules a little bit regarding the Best Original Song Award, making sure that no one could do the minimum necessary to make a song eligible. One of the major changes the music branch of the Academy made was making sure that songs appearing only in the end credits of a movie were eligible if they, quote, constitute a dramatically relevant postlude to the film, end quote. That means the song has to tie everything in a bow and not just be a song that fulfills the requirement that it be written for the movie. Not many end credit songs that had appeared in movies previous years would have had a problem with this rule, but the music branch was starting to close any loopholes to prevent any retroactive mistakes in judgment. None of the nominated songs from 1974 appeared in the end credits, so the music branch didn't have to vet those songs for this rule. What we get in this list of five is probably the most varied song list that we've seen in many years. We have a slightly comedic song from a slapstick comedy, as well as a tribute to a fictional child. There's also a song performed from the point of view of a dog, and two traditional love songs. Remember that plot details will be discussed throughout this and every episode. How about tackling this list of songs in alphabetical order for this episode? That starts us with that song about the dog, named Benji. Joe Camp directed, produced, and wrote the film about this lovable mutt who befriends two children and gets involved in a kidnapping scheme. This was Camp's first movie, and he was prompted to make Benji when he felt that family movies made by the studios were not very good. To make matters worse, none of the studios were interested in his screenplay but Camp raised the money to make it for a very cheap $500,000. Benji is not as cute as Lassie, but as we see him walking down the street, ownerless and without a care in the world, we know that he is one of the most popular dogs in the neighborhood. The song we hear during his introduction is called Benji's Theme, subtitled I Feel Love. It's performed by country music star Charlie Rich, with a vocal that sounds slightly rough, but peppy like the dog himself. I feel love all around I can feel it shining down Promise 
The song was written by husband and wife Yule Box and Betty Box. With the film being made in and around the Dallas area, the Boxes were hired mostly because they were local. Before this, Yule Box was a jingle writer for various companies and spent his years immediately after serving in the Marines as a radio show director. A movie about a dog that doesn't talk made about $15 million. Very good for a movie that cost half a million dollars to make. Talk about hitting a home run on your first at bat. Joe Camp was suddenly the toast of the movie business, and the song was a big part in helping the movie become the worldwide success that it became after its release in October 1974. The next song on the list comes from a movie that made $26 million in its theatrical run. It's Blazing Saddles, one of two movies written and directed by Mel Brooks for 1974. Brooks had won an Oscar for writing the original screenplay for the producers in 1968, and when he read the Blazing Saddles script by Andrew Bergman about a black man who comes in to play the sheriff in an old town in the Old West, Brooks knew there was great comedy in it. It kind of feels like the producers in the Old West. A government official has a black man act as sheriff in the town, hoping his arrival will cause chaos and allow him to make money on a railroad going through there. 
The infamous scene around the campfire with the continuous farting was reportedly a last-minute addition to the script. But besides that, pretty much all of it is scripted, despite the way it seems to be improvised. That sheriff's name is Black Bart, and we learn about his situation in the nominated title song, Blazing Saddles. John Morris, the composer of the film, had featured the melody in his score, and Brooks picked up on it as a fitting theme for the title song. After attending Juilliard, John Morris started his music career arranging other people's music on Broadway before creating his own show, A Time for Singing, in 1966. It was on Broadway that Morris met Mel Brooks, who asked Morris to write the score for the producers. That led to a collaboration that will include close to 20 Mel Brooks movies. The major component of the song is the sound of a whip cracking, which was achieved by actually cracking whips in the studio. Mel Brooks said in an interview that he advertised for a Frankie Lane type to sing the song, and was surprised that Frankie Lane himself answered the ad. Frankie sang his heart out, Brooks said. We didn't have the heart to tell him it was a spoof. We got so lucky with his serious interpretation of the song. End quote. Frankie Lane made a hit out of the 1959 Oscar-nominated song The Hanging Tree, though he wasn't the one who performed it in the film. Now, Lane got to be the originating performer on a nominated song, one that has probably stood the test of time longer than The Hanging Tree. Bart actually does ride in on a horse to the town of Rock Ridge, wearing the shining badge. I'm not sure about him being the torch to light the way, but Frankie Lane makes us believe it. As far as comedic songs go, it's rare to get them nominated for an Oscar, 
The last one we got was Chitty Chitty Bang Bang five years earlier, and a few others in the 1960s. As I mentioned earlier, John Morris features the melody for the Blazing Saddle song often in the score, particularly when Bart is doing something heroic. And when he and Gene Wilder's Waco Kid are riding off into the sunset, first on horseback and then in a limo of all things, a chorus repeats the final verse of the song. Brooks wrote the music and lyrics for the three other original songs in the film. The best one of those is I'm Tired, which Madeline Kahn sings in her Oscar-nominated Marlena Dietrich impression at a saloon. If there hadn't been a title song for Blazing Saddles, this song might have snuck in as an Oscar nominee. And the goddess of desire set men on fire. I have this power. Morning, noon, and night, it's drink and dancing, some quick romancing, and then a shower. Stage door Johnny's constantly surround me. They always hound me with one request. Who can satisfy their lustful habit? I'm not a rabbit. I need some rest. I'm tired, sick and tired of love. I've had my fill of love. From below and above Tired Tired of being admired Tired of love uninspired Let's face it, I'm tired The list of Oscar-nominated songs for 1974 features not one, but two movies for kids. Like Benji, The Little Prince was independently produced, 
The original story was written in 1943 and had sold more than 100 million copies when legendary director Stanley Donnan decided to bring it to the screen as a musical. Even though Donnan had success in his career with movies such as Singing in the Rain and Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, no studio was interested in this. Alan J. Lerner had long wanted to make a musical out of the Little Prince story, but after his longtime collaborator Frederick Lowe decided to retire in 1960, Lerner put it aside. When Lerner convinced Lowe to come out of retirement to add new songs to the stage adaptation of Gigi in 1973, the opportunity was perfect for Lerner to dust off his screenplay and get some songs added to it. The Academy's music branch liked two of the songs in the movie so much that they put them on the ballot for a potential Oscar nomination after the preliminary voting round. The musical and lyrical combinations show how Lerner and Lowe remained one of the top songwriting collaborators in movie history, even after a 13-year break. Each song fits the scene very well, and none of them feel like they could have been removed without ruining the film. One of the songs that made it onto the preliminary ballot was I Never Met a Rose, a sweet song that the pilot, played by Richard Kiley, sings to the prince. He tells the prince about all the other flowers he's encountered, including daisies, violets, and dahlias. The song harkens back to the musical stylings of the 1920s and 1930s, very jazzy. met a daisy, but where we met is hazy, and I have walked the streets with marguerites and clinging vines beside me. Oh, I've met a lot of those, but I never met a rose. There's often been a heather, an armful altogether, and I have even met a violet who almost satisfied me. Yes, I've met every kind that grows, but I never met a rose. Among the dahlias, I often dally. I left a lily in the valley, but now and then I ponder and wander as I wander among the fields and shrub. Perhaps the trouble is, who knows, that I never met a rose. Never, never met a rose. Richard Kiley's singing is great here, but not as operatic and emotional as his voice gets in the title song. And perhaps that's why I Never Met a Rose couldn't get past the preliminary round into the official five nominees. The song that did earn the Best Song Oscar nomination from The Little Prince was Little Prince, sung by Richard Kiley. It's sung at the end of the film when the boy prince lays dying after a bite from a snake. The pilot realizes how important the prince has been to him and sings this lullaby as the boy takes his final breaths. Little 
prince from who knows where was it a star was it a prayer with every smile you clear the air so i can see oh little prince don't take your smile away from me When you came, my day was done, and then your laugh turned on the sun. Oh, little prince, now to my wonder and surprise, all the hopes and dreams I lived among when this heart of mine was wise and young shine for me again. in your little prince don't take your smile away from me when you came my day was done and then your laugh turned on the sun oh little prince now to my wonder and surprise all the hopes and dreams i lived among When this heart of mine was wise and young shine for me again little prince in your Richard Kiley was a two-time Tony winner by the time he took the role of the pilot in The Little Prince. He didn't star in any of the stage shows or film musicals that Lerner and Lowe created because he was too young to play the leading roles. But his strong voice would have been great for Camelot or Brigadoon. The highest-grossing movie of 1974 kept the disaster movie genre alive and well and brought two of the most handsome movie stars together. The Towering Inferno was one of three disaster movies released in 1974, after Airport 1975 and Earthquake. And Irwin Allen was determined to make The Towering Inferno the best of them all. Allen had the good fortune of getting money from not one, but two studios. 20th Century Fox and Warner Brothers were prepping competing films about a skyscraper that catches fire, 
and instead of putting out the same film weeks apart, the studios decided to pool their resources and make one movie. This had never been done before in Hollywood, and the successful outcome set a precedent that would lead to more big-budget films being financed by two studios. In addition to nabbing Steve McQueen and Paul Newman in the top roles, Irwin Allen managed to nab Oscar winners Jennifer Jones and William Holden in major supporting roles. One of the most talked-about cast members of the film was Fred Astaire, essentially being pulled out of retirement to play a con man. Fred Astaire wanted to sing a song in the film and even went so far as to include that stipulation in his contract. But the song he wrote wasn't well received, and I don't think it was ever recorded or at least never made available commercially. Erwin Allen asked John Williams to not only write the score, but help write a song. But Williams was so busy working on the score for Earthquake that he couldn't fit in the songwriting into his schedule. That meant the two men who won Oscars for writing the song from Allen's previous film, The Poseidon Adventure, were the third choices to submit an original song for The Towering Inferno. We May Never Love Like This Again was written by Al Kasha and Joel Hirshhorn, the same men who wrote The Morning After, and won an Oscar for it. Very similar to the situation with The Morning After, the song in The Towering Inferno gives us hope about love before the big disaster strikes. Maureen McGovern, the woman who made The Morning After a big hit in late 1973, gets to be the original performer of We May Never Love Like This Again. Lyrics to the song do sound very cheesy when heard away from the film, but when you attach it to the drama that is about to unfold, the words take on a strong meaning. 
McGovern recorded a slightly longer version with a different vocal and instrumental arrangement to fill it out for a record single. It only got as high as number 68 on the Billboard charts. The B-side of that record was the song Wherever Love Takes Me, which happens to be the fifth nominated song for the Oscar in 1974. This is the first time McGovern has originated two Oscar-nominated songs in one year, but she's not the first to do it. You'll have to remember that Fred Astaire was the first, way back in 1935, with Cheek to Cheek and Lovely to Look At. The movie Gold starred Roger Moore in his first movie since taking over the role of James Bond in Live and Let Die. His appearance in the movie was not the goldmine that filmmakers had hoped. The movie barely made a million British pounds and another million in the United States. Moore plays the manager of a gold mine in South Africa, where he carries on an affair with his boss's wife. Susanna York is the woman in this love affair, and she plays it as if she's just cashing in the check. That makes the song Wherever Love Takes Me less impactful when it's sung as the two take a plane flight to a lodge in the South African wilderness on Christmas Day. Takes me, that's where I long to go. I wouldn't care how far away, long as you're there. It would be nice chasing every dream I have inside me. Yes, I would love to let my heart show. Thank you. 
The song is more uplifting than We May Never Love Like This Again, but there's no sense that there's love in this relationship, at least not yet. But it's a fitting song to play during their trip, indicating that they are happy to let love guide them to their romantic destination. Elmer Bernstein wrote the music for Wherever Love Takes Me, with Don Black stepping in to write the lyrics. The song marked Bernstein's fourth song nomination and 11th total Oscar nomination. In the five years since his last nomination for writing the title song for True Grit, Bernstein had been writing music for relatively low-budget movies, a sad state of affairs for a man who had won an Oscar for the score to Thoroughly Modern Millie in 1967. This is Black's first time writing lyrics for a song in a film set in Africa since Born Free seven years earlier. He and Bernstein also wrote the title song, performed by Jimmy Helms. The title song, Gold, sounds like Jimmy Helms is doing his best impression of Surly Bassey singing Diamonds Are Forever, which coincidentally has lyrics written by Don Black. Dying every day for gold Swilling in a cold black hole This side of hell but a price to pay for gold Why is there this lust for gold? To put a charm around a lady's neck Wish I'd never heard of gold Why is there this lust for gold? The Academy's music branch never had any love for Shirley Bassey's movie songs but they apparently liked Jimmy Helms' impression of Shirley Bassey. The title song for Gold made it through the preliminary Oscar voting round onto the list of 10, and almost giving Gold two Oscar-nominated songs in 1974. The double record of We May Never Love Like This Again and Wherever Love Takes Me was not a successful release, even with McGovern singing both tracks. We May Never Love Like This Again was the bigger hit, as I said, getting high as number 68 on the Billboard Hot 100 charts. Wherever Love Takes Me never cracked the top 200. This marked the first time since the beginning of the Billboard chart rankings that none of the nominated songs in a year ranked in the top 40. And here's a little spoiler alert. This will be the last time that happens in the first 90 years. With five very unpopular songs in the Oscar lineup, show producer Howard Koch had to be nervous about the possibility of people turning off their television sets during any of the song performances on the Oscar telecast. Instead of spreading out the songs throughout the show, Koch had them performed in a nine-minute medley to get them out of the way. Frankie Lane was the only one of the original performers to appear on the show, singing Blazing Saddles as only he could. Aretha Franklin, who was working her way back into the kind of massive popularity she enjoyed in the 1960s, was there to sing Wherever Love Takes Me, and pop singer Jack Jones sang Little Prince instead of original performer Richard Kiley. 
Those three came together as a trio for the two remaining songs, I Feel Love and We May Never Love Like This Again. Predicting the winner was tough for journalists in the lead-up to the April 8, 1975 ceremony. Benji's theme had won the Golden Globe, but We May Never Love Like This Again was the only hit of the five, and only a modest hit at that. Blazing Saddles had the fun factor going for it, and the Academy might have been looking to vote for something outside of the typical love song. MGM was celebrating its 50th anniversary in 1974 and released the film That's Entertainment to showcase all of its wonderful films that have made it into one of the top Hollywood studios. Gene Kelly was a large part of the studio's success, from Singing in the Rain to Anchors Away and An American in Paris, and was one of the hosts of that film. That put him back in the public eye, and the Academy capitalized on that by asking him to present the winner of the Best Song Award with Shirley MacLaine. Kelly, who never performed an Oscar-winning song, opened the envelope, and MacLaine announced that Al Kasha and Joel Hirshhorn won their second Oscars in three years for We May Never Love Like This Again. The win didn't open the floodgates of artists clamoring to record this song. In the two years after the Oscar win, only four acts recorded the song, making it one of the least recorded Oscar-winning songs in the first 41 years of the award. And despite winning two Oscars, Kasha and Hirshhorn were not widely sought after to write songs. They'll be back a few years later, but the fact that they couldn't find constant work was very surprising. Hirshhorn and Kasha are just two of the three songwriters nominated for 1974 that will be Oscar nominees again in future years. Don Black will return in a couple of years thanks to an invitation from Blake Edwards, but the other songwriters lost favor with Oscar in future projects. Yule Box and Betty Box wrote songs for the three Benji sequels in 1976, 1977, and 1987, but none of the movies or any of the songs gained any traction after the huge success of the original Benji film. John Morris will keep writing music for Mel Brooks movies, but Brooks would write all of the songs himself, none of which had the impact of Blazing Saddles. Brooks's songwriting skills earned him a lot of fame and fortune in 2001 when he staged a musical version of the producers on Broadway. Brooks won Tonys for the book and score of the show, just two of the record 12 Tonys it won. As for Frederick Lowe and Alan J. Lerner, I'm sad to report that they never worked together again after The Little Prince. Lowe returned to staunch retirement in Palm Springs, California. Lerner was asked to write lyrics with Andrew Lloyd Webber for The Phantom of the Opera, but Lerner was not in good health. The song Masquerade is the only song in the show that has lyrics by Alan J. Lerner. And shortly before his death in 1986, Lerner was asked to also write English lyrics for the new version of Les Miserables, but again, health issues prevented him from devoting a lot of time to it. It's always sad to learn of the final song compositions of many of these legends in the music industry, and this won't be the last year we mourn the end of a great career. In fact, our next episode will be the final time the greatest movie songwriter gets an invite to the Oscars as a nominee, and we'll hear that song and honor this icon as well as learn about the new composers and lyricists making their way into Oscar history. I'm excited to share these stories with you on the next episode. 
Thanks as always for singing along with me on this episode of the Best Song Podcast. Let's do it again next time. The Best Song Podcast is not authorized or endorsed by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The show's creator, writer, producer, and editor is Jeff Cummings. All music clips are permitted for use under the Education Clause of the Fair Use Doctrine in United States law.